Secretary Rice, Dean Slaughter, colleagues, students, alumni, ladies and gentlemen. It is a great pleasure to welcome you to this impressive gathering, the first of many events this year, both here and abroad, to mark the 75th anniversary of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. So let me begin by wishing Woody Woo the happiest of birthdays. For indeed, there is much to celebrate. For three quarters of a century, the Woodrow Wilson School has embodied Princeton's historic commitment to public service. It is fitting that since 1948, the school has carried the name of Woodrow Wilson, the 13th president of Princeton and the 28th president of the United States. It was Woodrow Wilson who exhorted all graduates of Princeton to serve our nation. And it was Wilson who later exhorted the nation to engage the world. While an anniversary is usually a time to reflect on past accomplishments, it is to the future that this celebration is pointed. For the Woodrow Wilson School is poised to generate the policy ideas and prepare the next generation to address the pressing challenges that confront our local, national, and international community in the next millennium. The multidisciplinary culture of the school and the breadth of intellectual resources that it brings to bear on complex problems have never been more in evidence nor more needed. The same is true of the civil discourse that it fosters among faculty, students, and visitors. Conversations that seek not unanimity, but rather mutual respect and understanding, and in time, a better world for all. We are delighted, Madam Secretary, that you have agreed to add your own voice to this discussion today. None of this would have been possible without the leadership of many dedicated Princetonians, the extraordinary generosity of Charles and Marie Robertson, who rightly saw the school as a critical force in shaping government. The dedication to teaching and research of generations of scholars and practitioners, and the commitment to service of more than 6,600 undergraduate and graduate alumni, including one of your predecessors, Madam Secretary, George Schultz of the class of 1942. Today we are grateful for the leadership of the chairs of the 75th anniversary committees who are here on the platform. Julius Coles, a member of the graduate class of 1966, and Charles Plone, Jr., of the undergraduate class of 1966. They are joined by Jamie Olson, chair of the school's graduate student government, and Sion Bonnot, a member of the school's undergraduate student advisory committee. I would also like to recognize the contributions of Paul Volker of the class of 1949, a 75th anniversary committee co-chair who unfortunately could not be with us this afternoon. Before I call on Anne-Marie Slaughter, 
Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, and the Bert G. Kerstetter, 66, University Professor of Politics and International Affairs, to introduce our distinguished speaker. May I ask all of you to take a moment to ensure that your cell phones and pagers are turned off. Anne-Marie. In May 1915, in Philadelphia, President Woodrow Wilson watched a group of immigrants take their oath of allegiance as new citizens of the United States. He then gave a speech, and he said, you have just taken an oath of allegiance to the United States. Of allegiance to whom? Of allegiance to no one, unless it be God. Certainly not of allegiance to those who temporarily represent this great government. You have taken an oath of, of allegiance to a great ideal, to a great body of principles, to a great hope of the human race. Condoleezza Rice has defined her term as Secretary of State in service to that ideal. In a landmark speech at the University of Cairo in June of this year, Secretary Rice acknowledged that in the past, the United States had pursued stability at the expense of democracy, but that now we are taking a different course. We are supporting the democratic aspirations of all people. She defined the core of democracy as the preservation of basic human rights. And then she said, and I'd like to quote, securing these rights is the hope of every citizen and the duty of every government. In my own country, the progress of democracy has been long and difficult. And given our history, the United States has no cause for, for false pride and, and we have every reason for humility. After all, America was founded by individuals who knew that all human beings and the government they create are inherently imperfect. And the United States was born half free and half slave. And it was only in my lifetime that my government guaranteed the right to vote for all of its citizens. As I wrote in June, that speech marked a historic turn. Secretary Rice was not only proclaiming our ideals, she was acknowledging our faults on a global stage. That is what the world needs to hear, that we do have, as President Wilson said, a great ideal, a great body of principles. But we have also had to work very hard over 200 years to hold our own government to those principles and that we are far from perfect. Indeed, we can learn as well as teach. When Secretary Rice represents us around the world, as she has done tirelessly since taking office in January, she brings extraordinary intelligence, accomplishment, discipline, and drive to the job.
she reflects an America in which things once thought impossible have become possible. I am honored and proud to welcome her to Princeton. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you. Madam President, other distinguished members here on the dais, and especially to Anne-Marie Slaughter, who I know not just as a fine dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, but also as an extraordinary scholar, um, whose expertise I've tapped on a couple of occasions uh, since I've been secretary. Uh, thank you for your leadership of this great university and your leadership of this great school. I'm honored to be here today at Princeton from George Kennan and John Foster Dulles to George Schultz and James Baker, and of course, Woodrow Wilson. Many renowned American statesmen have worn the orange and black. I'm especially honored to help all of you celebrate this historic 75th anniversary of the Woodrow Wilson School. As a professor myself, I understand how important it is to root the practice of statecraft in the study of statecraft, in the systematic examination of politics and history and culture that the Wilson School offers to its students. Ladies and gentlemen, 75 years ago when this school was founded, it was a difficult time when the world's democracies were like islands in a raging sea. Adolf Hitler was planning his ascent to power in Germany and plotting his conquest of Europe. And Joseph Stalin was consolidating his rule and building a Soviet Union that would threaten the entire free world. Today, however, democracies are emerging wherever and whenever the tide of oppression recedes. As President Bush said in his second inaugural address, the best hope for peace in our world is the expansion of freedom in all the world. Now to forge realistic policies from these idealistic principles, we must recognize that statecraft can assume two fundamentally different forms. In ordinary times, when existing ideas and institutions and alliances are adequate to the challenges of the day, the purpose of statecraft is to manage and sustain the established international order. But in extraordinary times, when the very terrain of history shifts beneath our feet and decades of human effort collapse into irrelevance, the mission of statecraft is to transform our institutions and partnerships, to realize new purposes on the basis of enduring values. One such extraordinary moment began in 1945 in the wreckage of one of the great cataclysms in human history. World War II thoroughly consumed the old international system and it fell to a group of statesmen, individuals like Truman and Acheson and Vandenberg, to assume the roles of architects and builders of a better world. The solutions to those challenges seem perfectly clear now with half a century of hindsight. But it was anything but clear for the men and women who lived and worked in those unprecedented changes. 
Long after he was present at the creation, Dean Acheson remembered the early years of the Cold War as cloudy and puzzling and perilous. The significance of events, he wrote, was shrouded in ambiguity, and we hesitated long before grasping what now seems obvious. But despite the extraordinary nature of their time, the statesmen of that era succeeded brilliantly. They conceived doctrines and created alliances and built the institutions that formed the foundation of a new international system, one organized to defend freedom from the spread of communism. The ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union initiated a new moment of transformation. This was a glorious revolution, a cause for celebration throughout Russia and Eastern Europe. Warsaw Pact countries became the new heart of NATO, and we transformed that alliance into one that Truman and Acheson would never have recognized, but would certainly have applauded. Some even thought that the engine of globalization might just make the possibility of conflict remote. But lurking below the surface, old hatreds were gaining new power. And on a warm September morning, America encountered the darker demons of our new world. People still differ about what September 11th calls us to do. And in a democratic society, that debate is healthy and just and right. If you focus only on the attacks themselves and believe they were caused by 19 hijackers supported by a network called Al-Qaeda and operating from a failed state, Afghanistan, then our response can be limited. The course of action presumes that we are still living in ordinary times. But if you believe, as I do and as President Bush does, that the root cause of September 11th was the violent expression of a global extremist ideology, an ideology rooted in the oppression and despair of the modern Middle East, then we must seek to remove the very source of this terror by transforming that troubled region. If you believe, as we do, then it cannot be denied that we are standing at an extraordinary moment in history. Some would argue that this broad approach to the problem is making the world less stable by rocking the boat and wrecking the status quo. But this presumes the existence of a stable status quo that does not threaten global security. This is not the case. A regional order that produced an ideology of hatred so savage as the one we now confront is not serving any civilized interest. For 60 years, we often thought that we could achieve Now we must recognize, as we do in every other region of the world, that liberty and democracy are the only guarantees of true stability and lasting security. There are those who worry that greater freedom of choice in the Middle East will only liberate and empower extremism. In fact, the opposite is true. A political culture of transparency and openness is not one in which extremist beliefs can ultimately thrive. Extremism is most dangerous when it lurks in the dark and hides underground. 
when there is no political space for individuals to advance their interests and redress their grievances. Then they retreat into the shadows to grow ever more radical and divorced from reality. We saw the result of that on September 11th. And now we must work to advance democratic reforms throughout the greater Middle East. Now, to support democratic aspirations, we must be serious about the universal appeal of certain basic rights. When given a truly free choice, human beings will choose liberty over oppression, the right to own property over random search and seizure. Human beings will choose the natural right to life over the constant fear of death. And human beings will choose to be ruled by the consent of the governed, not by the coercion of the state by the rule of law, not the whim of rulers. These principles should be the source of justice in every society and the basis for peace between all states. To support democratic aspirations, we must also promote democratic institutions that function transparently and accountably. We must help all young democracies to protect minority rights, to enforce the rule of law, and to build the foundations of good governance from a thriving economy and a vibrant civil society, society to a free media and opportunities for learning and for health for their people. To support democratic aspirations, we must recognize that liberty still faces opponents in our world. Some will never support the free choices of their citizens because they stand to lose arbitrary powers and unjust privileges. Others know that the ideology of hatred they espouse can only thrive in a political culture of oppression and poverty and hopelessness. In a world where evil is still very real, democratic principles must also be backed with power in all its forms, political and economic and cultural and moral, and yes, sometimes military. Any champion of democracy who promotes principle without power can make no real difference in the lives of oppressed people. There are those who falsely characterize the support of democracy as exporting democracy, as if democracy were somehow a product that only America manufactures. These critics say that we are arrogantly imposing our principles on an unwilling people. But it is the very height of arrogance to believe that political liberty and democratic aspirations and freedom of speech and rights for women somehow belong only to us. All people deserve these rights, and they choose them freely. It is not liberty and democracy that must be imposed. It is tyranny and silence that are forced upon people at gunpoint. We know that the march of democracy is not easy. We know that coming to terms with the provision of these rights takes time. We know because of our own history in which imperfect people put together institutions that allowed us to strive every day toward a more perfect union. But of course, in our 250 years, we are still striving. And as we look at others who are still striving, we owe them our respect and their confidence that they too can achieve their aspirations. For years, the entire world talked about ending the Taliban's tyranny in Afghanistan. 
But it was finally the United States leading a coalition of willing nations and brave Afghans that finally put an end to that regime's persecution of its people. Although many challenges remain, Afghanistan has amazed the world with its rapid progress toward democracy, even as many people begin to take it for granted. For years, the entire world talked about ending serious occupation of Lebanon. But the United States and France, leading a broad international coalition with a UN Security Council mandate that together with Lebanese patriots finally achieved the withdrawal of Syrian forces after the brutal murder of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. Since then, the Lebanese people have held their first free elections in decades, and we are now supporting them in the hard work of democratic reform that will continue long into the future. For years, the entire world sought to make peace between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, while overlooking the corrupt nature and terrorist links of Yasser Arafat's rule. But President Bush refused to deal with Arafat and encouraged the Palestinian people to undertake the democratic reforms they so justly deserved. And since Arafat's death, the Palestinian people have elected a president who calls for peace with Israel and recognizes the need to fight terrorism. Now, if both Palestinians and Israelis meet their obligations, there is a true opportunity for a lasting peace. For years, the topic of reform was not even a part of our dialogue with Egypt and Saudi Arabia. But President Bush has insisted on having these difficult discussions with our two oldest friends, in private and in public. Both countries are now taking steps to greater political municipal elections earlier this year because women did not vote, though they have promised that they will vote in the future. Egypt held flawed but landmark presidential elections this summer in which there was at least vigorous debate of the options before Egyptians, and they will turn to parliamentary elections next year. Democracy, however, is more than a matter of holding elections, and we therefore expect both Egypt and Saudi Arabia to begin reforming the political institutions that are the key to lasting success for any democracy. And of course, for many years, the entire world talked about ending the tyranny in Ba'athist Iraq. Despite 17 Security Council resolutions demanding that Saddam Hussein stop oppressing his people, refrain from threatening his neighbors, and cease the pursuit of weapons of mass destruction, he remained in power. The United States and a large coalition of nations finally removed Saddam Hussein. By any moral standard, the liberation of the Iraqi people was long overdue. Now, it was only two and a half years ago that Saddam Hussein was still in control of Iraq. He was torturing his political opponents, and he was plundering the oil for food program and using the money to corrupt individuals and institutions worldwide, while Iraqi children died of malnutrition and lack of medicine. He was forcing male dissenters to witness the rape of their wives and daughters and shoveling the stale dirt of mass graves onto the latest of his 300,000 innocent victims. A monster like Saddam Hussein could not be a part of anyone's vision for a better Middle East. Now Saddam Hussein is gone, and the Iraqi people have a more hopeful future. To be sure, 
Iraqis still face a long, hard path to that hopeful future. Historical changes of the scope and magnitude of this one are bound to be difficult. And this is a country that rests on the major fault lines of religion and ethnicity in the Middle East. It was held together for most of its history through coercion and repression. Now, despite having known little but tyranny, the Iraqi people are trying to govern themselves through politics, not violence, through compromise, not conflict. Millions of Iraqis risked their lives to vote last January, and their free representatives have drafted a constitution that enshrines the principles of democracy and equality of all Iraqis before the law. The United Nations, having increased its presence in Iraq tenfold in just the past year, is helping to organize this constitutional referendum as well as the elections that will follow at the end of the year. In both of these important votes, American and coalition soldiers will join Iraq's security forces to defend the Iraqi people's freedom of choice, whatever course of action they favor. There is a path to success, and Iraqis are progressing along it. But they must themselves maintain their commitment to the democratic political process and to a life of cooperation and compromise rather than violence. We must help them to fully develop their own security forces. And they must build institutions that sustain accountability and provide public services. For their part, Iraq's neighbors must provide greater financial support and stronger diplomatic support. And the international community must continue to stand firmly at Iraq's side. Now, clearly, the path is made more difficult by the brutal insurgency that Iraqis face. Iraq's security forces are fighting this enemy vigorously, coalition forces are helping, and America's men and women in uniform are performing heroically. Nearly 2,000 American servicemen and women have given their lives to this mission, and our nation will always honor their names and their sacrifice. So let us be very clear about exactly who they and we are fighting. Some of the insurgency is fueled by the same thugs and henchmen who enforced Saddam Hussein's tyranny for decades. They fight now to regain the unjust privileges they once had. There are others, however, foreign terrorists, terrorists like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who seek to ignite the very civil war that ordinary Iraqis are trying so hard to prevent. These terrorists target Iraqi children receiving candy from American soldiers. They line up school teachers and execute them in their classrooms. They murder hospital workers caring for the wounded. And they massacre innocent Muslims who want to serve as policemen and soldiers and government officials in the new Iraq. This is not some grassroots coalition of national resistance. These are merciless killers who want to provoke nothing less than a full-scale civil war among Muslims across the entire Middle East. And having done so, they would build an empire of terror and oppression. The choice we face in Iraq is thus stark. If we quit now, we will abandon Iraq's Democrats at their time of greatest need. We will embolden every enemy of liberty and democracy across the Middle East. We will destroy any chance that the people of this region have of building a future of hope and opportunity, and we will make America more vulnerable. 
If we abandon future generations in the Middle East to despair and terror, we also condemn future generations in the United States to insecurity and fear. Ladies and gentlemen, we have set out to help the people of the Middle East transform their societies. Now is not the time to falter or fade. Only four years ago, the Democrats of the Arab world were hiding in silence or languishing in prison or fearing for their very lives. Now, from Cairo and Ramallah to Beirut and Baghdad, men and women are finding new spaces of freedom to assemble and debate and build a better world for themselves and for their children. They most certainly have determined enemies, but they also have determined defenders. And it is possible to envision a future Middle East where democracy is thriving, where human rights are secure, and where hope and opportunity are within the reach of these people. I know that this vision can seem very distant at times, especially when we see so many tragic images of death, of innocent Iraqis and Afghans, and of course, Americans dying overseas. There are legitimate differences about the war we are now fighting in Iraq. And in a great democracy like ours, everyone has a right to express those views freely. But I hope that we can all step back and look at other extraordinary times. And though they are never perfectly parallel, they can help us to gain a perspective on the challenges we face. In 1989, I was lucky enough to be the White House Soviet specialist at the end of the Cold War. It doesn't get any better than that. I was there for the liberation of Eastern Europe, for the unification of Germany, and for the beginnings of the peaceful collapse of the Soviet Union itself. I saw things that I never thought possible. And one day, they seemed impossible, and several days later, they seemed inevitable. That is the nature of extraordinary times. But as I think back now on those times, I realize that I was only harvesting the good decisions that had been taken in 1947, and in 1948, and in 1949. And sometimes I wonder how in the crush of events, the crush of the moment, people like Acheson and Truman and Marshall and Vandenberg saw a path ahead. After all, in 1946, the German reconstruction was still failing and Germans were still starving. Japan lay prostrate. In 1947, there was a civil war in Greece. In 1948, Germany was permanently divided by the Berlin crisis. Czechoslovakia was lost to a communist coup. And in 1949, the Soviet Union exploded a nuclear weapon five years ahead of schedule, and the Chinese Communists won their war. In 1950, a brutal war broke out on the Korean Peninsula. These were not just tactical setbacks for the forward march of democracy. Indeed, it must have seemed quite impossible that we would one day stand at a juncture where Eastern Europe would be liberated, Russia would emerge, and Europe would be whole and free and at peace. 
If we think back on those days, we recognize that extraordinary times are turbulent and they're hard. And it is very often hard to see a clear path. But if you are as those great architects of the post-Cold War victory were, if you are true to your values, if you are certain of your values, and if you act upon them with confidence and with strength, it is possible to have an outcome where democracy spreads and peace and liberty reign. Because of the work that they did, it is hard to imagine war in Europe again. So it shall be also for the Middle East. Thank you very much. Secretary Rice has agreed to take questions. Uh, please raise your hand and then wait for the microphone. Thank you for coming, first off. I've just been curious. It seems to me that there's been some sort of disconnect with a lot of the rhetoric that you've been presenting here today and with a lot of our actions in the Middle East. One example is that it seems that we've started to take a lot of a softer line uh, with Hamas and Palestine, which mm -hmm. is an organization that I think really doesn't fit with the ideals you've been uh, promoting here. I was just wondering if you could try and maybe explain that disconnect you've been seeing. Thank you. It's, it's a, a very good question. Look, we've, we've been very clear that Hamas is a terrorist group and it has to be disbanded both for peace and security and in the Middle East and for the proper functioning of the uh, Palestinian Authority. After all, it is a roadmap map obligation of the Palestinian Authority to, dismand, uh, to, to uh, disband militias and uh, armed resistance groups. There are periods of time of transition um, in which uh, one has to give some space to the, um, the participants, in this case the Palestinians, to begin to come to a new national compact. But I cannot imagine, in the final analysis, a new national compact that leaves an armed resistance group within the political space. Uh, you cannot simultaneously keep an option on politics and an option on violence. There simply isn't a case that I can think of internationally where that's been permitted to happen. For instance, in the Good Friday Agreement, uh, it was understood that when Sinn Féin came into politics and eventually uh, the IRA would disarm and perhaps, hopefully, that process is, is now underway. Uh, we did not permit the Afghan warlords to keep their weapons and participate as candidates in politics. They had to make a choice. And so um, it, is, it is absolutely the case that you cannot have armed groups participating, um, ultimately participating in politics with no expectation that they're going to disarm. But we are very clear-headed about Hamas. Hamas uh, stands for one-state solution, not a two-state solution. 
Hamas, therefore, stands for the destruction of Israel. Hamas um, is an organization that asks Palestinian mothers and fathers to give their children up to uh, make themselves suicide bombers. And uh, it is a real um, detriment um, and block to further peace in the Middle East. So we're not at all uh, confused by this. Uh, we do, I think, need to give the Palestinians some space to try and reconcile their national politics, but they're going to eventually have to disarm uh, these groups. They can't have it both ways. Secretary Rice, again, thank you for being here with all the students from Princeton. Uh, my question is about Latin America. I'm actually from Nicaragua. Um, during the first term of President Bush, it was with Roger Noriega, Subsecretary of State for uh, Western Hemisphere Affairs. It was readily apparent that the main interest of the United States in Latin America was Cuba. Uh, will, will this continue during the second term? What, what, is, what is the policy of the United States towards Latin America? And I would like you to comment on the next presidential elections coming up in the next two years. Thank you. All right. Uh, the United States obviously has an interest in a free Cuba uh, because, uh, as the President said, tyranny shouldn't exist anyplace. And it is a sad fact that it, the Organization of American States, the only country that cannot take up its seat there is Cuba because you have to be a democracy to be part of the Organization of American States. But it is not the sum total of our policy in Latin America. Our policy in Latin America is to encourage uh, growth so that uh, economic development can take place good governance um, and democratic governance, and that means that those who are democratically elected need to continue to govern democratically, and free trade, which makes it possible to have an engine for that economic growth. Now, what I think we've recognized in the last uh, couple of years is that there was a piece of this that we didn't talk enough about, and that is the issue of making uh, economic development and growth relevant to the lives of people, particularly the most marginalized populations, whether they be indigenous peoples uh, in places like Guatemala or Peru or, uh, or Brazil, or whether they are simply people who are so poor that they are marginalized without health care and without access to education. And um, in our latest discussions with, uh, with our Latin American colleagues, uh, we have had what we call the Monterey Consensus, but we have moved on to add to that, that there really has to be a concerted effort to make sure that any benefits of economic growth, because you're getting economic growth in Latin America, but that they somehow become tangible benefits uh, for the people. I believe that this helps to protect us, and this gets to your next question, and I, I won't comment on any specific election, but clearly what is happening is that um, you have a lot of responsible governments that are right of center and some that are left of center. Our view is right of center, left of center, not our issue. Democratically elected, we can work with them. The problem is that you are getting some, um, in, the, in the Latin American term, populist governments that are appealing to the social justice um, message. And that ground cannot be ceded to uh, people who are not going to be responsible in their economic policies. And so we've had actually very good discussions, for instance, with President Lula in Brazil, uh, with the Chileans uh, and with the Colombians and others. We believe that the uh, Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank uh, can perhaps do more on uh, these issues. And that has been our approach to, to Latin America, is to, uh, to try and help stabilize democratic 
governance through economic growth, but also dealing with the real problems of people. And in, in your own country, Nicaragua, of course, uh, we are very concerned about, um, let me say, um, anti-democratic, if legal, means that are being used uh, to undermine the power of the presidency, which was voted uh, by the Nicaraguan people. And uh, there have been a number of envoys there from the OAS and from other places. And of course, um, the Nicaraguan government made an appeal for, the, uh, for Mr. Insulza, the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, to go there about six weeks ago. He did. We're following that situation very closely. <laughs> right there in the front row. Okay. Secretary Rice, what is your reaction to the reception that Karen Hughes received in Saudi Arabia last week? Right. Well, I think Karen, who uh, went on what she called a listening tour, um, did exactly what we wanted to have happen. People obviously felt that they could open up and say exactly what they thought was right and exactly what they thought was wrong. Now, I said in my, in my um, confirmation hearings, this has to be a dialogue, not a, not a, a conversation, not a monologue. And uh, some people think of public diplomacy as you talk at them about your message and they listen. We think of public diplomacy as we talk with each other about the trends and developments that are going on in the Middle East. And uh, I haven't had a chance, obviously, to talk with Karen. She's not back yet. But I think she found a wide variety of opinions uh, on some things that we probably thought the range of opinions was narrower. And that will help us to inform um, our policies, and it will help us to inform our uh, outreach to people and our messages. So I, I thought the reaction was just fine. It is really refreshing to me to see First of all, women in the Middle East speaking up with that kind of fervor and that kind of activity and expressing themselves and saying all kinds of things from a wide variety of perspectives. And secondly, for that kind of freedom of expression to, being, to begin uh, taking place in the Middle East, I think that's really kind of the headline underneath this. Last question, I'm going to ask our own Fred Hitz. Thank you, Madam Secretary, for coming. It was an excellent talk. Do you foresee the possibility of a federal outcome in Iraq? And if there is one, will the United States accept it? Mm -hmm. um, I suspect that um, there will be an outcome that is uh, federal in some uh, aspect. That means that there will be some uh, distribution of power between the center and uh, the regions. Uh, it's a very complicated place. It is really hard to imagine it being run just from Baghdad uh, and yet dealing with the varied and uh, multifaceted interests of the people. Um, the um, constitution that they uh, have drafted uh, acknowledges a federal uh, system, but I think they're still going to have quite a debate about exactly what that means. And uh, we, we have to say that however they choose to define that, I think we will understand that that is an Iraqi choice. Now, the one obligation that I think all of Iraq's neighbors, 
believe that all of us have is that it needs to remain a unified Iraq, a united Iraq, that it cannot become several Iraqs. It has to be a united Iraq. But of course, within a united Iraq, you can have different distribution of powers and different distribution of responsibilities between the center and, uh, and the regions, and I think you will see that. One of the smartest things that they did uh, was that uh, rather than try to write all of the rules about how different aggregations would be, of units would become federal structures, like the one that the Kurds had, have. They didn't write that into the Constitution. They've left the writing of those rules to the next assembly. The next assembly should be more representative, including greater Sunni representation. By the way, the Sunnis are registering in droves to be a part of this political process. And if you have a more representative uh, assembly, then I think those rules will probably get written in a way that addresses the interests of uh, various, uh, various competing interests, some who want a more federalized state, others who want a more centralized state. They're going to have to come to, uh, to conclusions. But, I, but obviously, the, the most important thing is that it has to be a unified Iraq. Uh, that means that there are certain functions, obviously, that are going to have to be reserved to the state. Uh, but how they come to terms with uh, the relative uh, relationship between the power of the center and the regions, I think we're going to have to stand back and, and have them go at it. And I might just note, uh, as, as a closing note, um, we sometimes think of these um, issues as fixed in time. They write a draft constitution, they write rules for it, and it never changes. If we know anything about our own political system, it is that the understandings and the way that these systems and these institutions work tend to evolve over time. And they tend to evolve at times when there is greater trust and understanding between parties that might not have been there when the original document was written. I remind people, after all, that you know our, our Constitution wasn't so perfect, uh, the one that was, was written in Philadelphia, because um, we had to make that nasty compromise about three-fifths of a man in order to hold the country together. Now, uh, fortunately, nobody's made a compromise quite that bad as somebody who's a descendant of, of, uh, of those people. But it does show that even if you have compromises from time to time, over time things evolve. And so while I think that the Iraqis will come to some conclusions in the immediate next few years about what this structure might look like, I suspect that over time it will evolve, it will become a living uh, document, it will become a, a, living, um, a, a living process and living institutions, and in the political process as it moves forward, some of this will smooth out over uh, with the benefit of time. Thank you. In closing, let me tell you one more thing about Secretary Rice. I am facing an audience of Princeton students and alumni, and I know, as a Princetonian myself, that some enormous percentage of you started your application to Princeton talking about your aspirations to be a Renaissance man or woman. 
Princeton has always favored the well-rounded student. Secretary Rice is not only the leader you have just seen with a breathtaking knowledge uh, of the entire world, she is a concert pianist and a near champion figure skater. We would welcome her back to Princeton anytime. She's like Woodrow Wilson in one other way. She did not simply profess. She is in the government practicing what she once preached. But again, should she decide to return to the academic profession, we would welcome her at the Woodrow Wilson School. Please stay seated as Secretary Rice leaves. Thank you.